1: Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about the Royal Tenenbaums, written by Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, directed by Wes Anderson. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team: Trisha Rand, hello everyone, Brian Pittner.
0: Yes, I have a two-part greeting. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> and alex
1: calleros hi um okay so before we begin reminder to everyone we have merch now check out our merch store link is in the show notes and for our next episode we will be talking about the truman show finally which i'm very excited about it's amazing uh that's gonna be great Okay, so now I'm wishing that I had Alex Baldwin's voice so I could just do the whole podcast in that voice because that's just, <laughs> it's
0: just so good. I'm sure Brian can give us <laughs> a <few days. laughs> now now. Not without prep, don't put me in the spot. <laughs> um, okay, so
1: we've talked about Wes Anderson a little bit before. Uh, the Royal Tenenbaums it was my first Wes Anderson film and I remember watching it. In high school, I think, uh, with my parents, which was kind of awkward, but just watching this movie and being entirely ensorcelled by the style and everything that was happening to me <laughs> of like, what? This this can be a movie, too? Like, I didn't know you could make things like this. And so this movie got me super into Wes Anderson. Uh, I loved the filmmaking. I loved it the emotion, like all of the feels hit hard and I was feeling the existential dread as all the other characters. And I was like, yeah, I am depressed too. Like I do want to go sit in a bathtub with the TV sitting too close to the edge of it. So I had those <laughs> moments, but I also thought it was hilarious and really funny and heartfelt. So I have a very warm place in my heart for the Royal Tenenbaums. Revisiting it, it wasn't as... uh an exuberant experience. But I think as I was watching, it was because I realized I've watched it too many times and squeezed all the juice out of it. So this began my love affair with Wes Anderson that lasted for a while, but also had a pretty hard stop. And so we will potentially talk about that as we move on. But I want to hear from you guys, your thoughts on the Royal Ten of Bobs. Alex, let me start with you.
2: It's funny because I think I have the exact inverse experience (laughs) of of, where it's like, you know, you fell in love, love at first sight with this movie and squeezed everything out of it. This was my I think this is also my first exposure to Wes Anderson. Also in high school, it was like the hot thing. It was the cool thing. I feel like a lot of people I knew were really into it. And, you know, just I think one of my friends like was going by Royal or like his like <laughs> AOL instant messenger, like incorporated Royal well, into the, um, you know, whatever. So it was, it was like a thing, a cool thing. And then I saw it and I think, yeah, I was not as like sophisticated or French, a like teenager as Michael was. <laughs> like I, didn't, I wasn't like having the same kind of existential, like dread thoughts or whatever. And so I was mostly put off by the style. And I think, it was kind of a thing I think I just watched it at home I didn't see it in theaters where I was forced to like focus on it so I was just kind of almost like drifting off as soon as that opening Alec Baldwin montage was happening where it was like I I appreciated like the filmmaking like like oh this is these are very pretty like well composed shots but I'm really annoyed at like this kid in the business suit with like the ties and the, like the weird business. And like what even is this world? And it's kind of like annoying how cool this movie thinks it is. And like, it's it tri- It's a kind of try hard. So <laughs> I, there was, I think there was a whole thing around it that I was like pushing back against. And I was like, is it really that great that there's just a bunch of like dioramas with people like doing things with Alec Baldwin speaking? Is that good? Or is that just like cool right now? Um And, and I think, so I, I think I just thought the ones didn't even pay attention a whole lot to it. Maybe it was at home, like on, you know, Blockbuster rental. Um, so it, I did not have a great first impression of Wes Anderson. Uh, and I was mostly annoyed by the hullabaloo around it. Uh, revisiting it now, like as an adult who like has life experience, I liked it so much more. And it was funny because I had this I had this journey watching it uh, the other night where I, I started off in the grumpy place of like, oh yeah, here's that opening. I remember with like the kids and like the, duh. but the movie as it went on, like really snuck up on me and the, the tenderness and the sweetness that is actually like throughout this movie that I kind of forgot about or didn't realize mm-hmm. was there, like really snuck up on me. And by the end I was like tearing up and feeling the feels. So I was like, wait a minute. Okay. Now I, I get it. Yeah, this is good. This is really good. Um, so I begrudgingly really liked it on this <laughs> last viewing, uh, which was a nice, like, yeah, uh, it, 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 it repaired my like initial aversion
1: to Wes Anderson that I had back in high school. Nice. It's a wonderful heartwarming story that I'm happy yeah. to hear. <laughs> Trisha, what about you?
3: Yeah. I mean, i I would guess this was probably my first Wes Anderson movie. I I don't really remember. I've definitely, so I've seen all of his movies now, but I've, like, just kind of, like, scatter, like, you know, just kind of catch as catch can, like, just kind of gotten them all. Um, And the last one I saw most recently uh, that I had missed for a long time was Darjeeling Limited, um, and but I just caught that one, like, a year Mm. or two ago. Uh, So I have... Collected them all now um, up, up until up until uh, Asteroid City comes out, which I am excited about, um, which is his new one. I think he's a really fascinating filmmaker. I really, really like this movie. Um, but watching it this time around, I was like, this movie is really, really good. Uh, and I don't know why. Like, yeah. like <laughs> the filmmaking is so assertive and so showy. And so, um, you know, he, he had his like absolute commitment to like formalism I feel like hadn't quite super crystallized in the way that like by the time it gets to um Grand Budapest which I really love uh this is not Grand Budapest right like this actually still and I think I think maybe what you're going to get to later Michael is that 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 can really keep people at arm's length um that just like fanatical formalism uh, (laughs) when we get to that point in his career I think that this movie is like this really interesting meditation on like grief and family and all these things Um, but it has like Almost none of the things that we always talk about on this podcast. Like, it has almost none of the, like, well, here's a protagonist with a clear goal, and here's a, the, you know, like just the stuff that we like normally check our boxes about. Um, yeah, Alex, I, I see your, I, I agree with you. There are goals that are.
2: I have thoughts. But, it, you know,
3: it's a true ensemble, and like, it's got sequences that feel episodic, um, and there are lots of, of, character arcs and plot lines, um, that sometimes don't always feel like they're very tightly interwoven. They feel kind of diffuse at times. Um, so yeah, I was just like, this movie's so good, but why, but, but why, why is it so good? Um, and it, I don't know if, I don't know if like saying that it's different is going to be enough of an, like than a lot of other movies, right? I don't know if that's going to be enough of an answer for me. So, uh, I am. I Very excited to interrogate this a little bit more with you guys. Much has been written about this movie and about Wes Anderson, um, and I have done some reading about it, and I will say that even the best essays I've read about it are a little bit scattered in the same way that the movie is. So um, I don't know. I want to get into that.
1: Writing down the note for this episode figure out why this movie is good okay
3: <laughs> perfect we have a goal t- tall order. Yes. <laughs> perfect
2: i picture that like center like a handwritten note center frame mm-hmm. yeah.
1: with a dalmatian <laughs> mouse right next we, to yeah. it and
3: now the camera pans directly to brian he's right yes. in the middle of
1: it <laughs> brian
0: what um, yeah, <laughs> one of our, uh, off of what Tricia just said, um, one of our patrons, Peter Desmond said, uh, I'm always amazed how well this movie presents a web of character relationships yep. with the dad as the spider in the middle. Uh, it seems mm. to do so, so effortlessly, uh, but there likely there's, there's a structure to it, you know? And, and I think that that's, that's exactly what you're getting at, Tricia. There's yep. like, it's all there, right? Whether or not it's perfectly in sync where like at this act at this moment we get the next part of that i don't know but but by the end of the movie you feel like you've seen everything right you've all the characters have like gone on their little journeys and stuff um and and yeah i i saw this movie in the theater and pretty sure i loved it right away i can't remember if i saw this or rushmore first but it was would have been within the same year where i either saw rushmore and then went and saw Tenenbaums or saw Tenenbaums and then went and watched Rushmore. Um, but I like both of those and eventually saw Bottle Rocket after that. Um, and uh, and yeah, I, I just think that what I it, you kind of said it to Michael, like what I love about early Wes Anderson, especially is there is there is this sort of open wound like that you feel when you're watching something like just like either the, the filmmaker or the characters or both are just in pain. And there's something very gripping about that and very sort of heartbreaking, but also heartwarming about that. And then the style is this just like cool, quirky, funny thing that's also happening. And when it's working at its best, and I think Tenenbaums is is probably when it's working at its best, they feel in, you know, the style feels in service of the substance. They feel like they're speaking to each other. And like when, The the formalism breaks. It's breaking for a specific reason. But it's also like the the interesting thing about this movie is especially when you are used to later Wes Anderson, like you were saying, Tricia, is like this movie is not every frame a painting, right? This movie is not every single shot is like, look at how it there's a lot of that. Right. And that's what we remember. But when you watch the movie, you're like, oh, no. It, that stuff is there, but that stuff is not there every single second, right? right? And I think that later Wes Anderson starts to feel like, oh, you're trying so hard in every shot to make me see how symmetrical everything is, right? Um, so I think that that what I love – and I, I would say Bottle Rocket, he hadn't quite gotten there yet. I don't remember how much of sort of what we would think about as Wes Andersoniness is in Bottle Rocket. A but- lot less. A yeah. lot less, yeah. yeah. But Rushmore and Tannenbaum's, and, and I would say a little bit life aquatic feel like there's just this really nice balance where he sort of found this style, um, but he hadn't he hadn't committed so hard to it yet. So there's so there feels like this nice blend. And it's why I love Darjeeling too, is I feel like that I care more about the characters than I do about looking at the shots and everything. Um so uh so yeah, that that's where I stand on sort of Wes Anderson's filmography. But this movie I love and it I feel like I love it just as much now as, as I did back then when I watch it, like it just sort of, it still, it still gets me in all the right places.
2: Yeah. I was struck watching it this time by the looseness actually in, in a lot of scenes where I, I was bracing myself for the thing that does keep me at arm's length with Wes Anderson movies, where it's just that formalism that is like, you know, feels try hard or showy in the way we're talking about. That's what turned me off to my impression of tenant bombs when I was, younger uh but this movie uh, there once we got to kind of there's these later scenes uh when royal is you know telling ethelene that he's dying that there's a kind of a long take scene where they're just out on the sidewalk Mm -hmm. it's just two actors just going back and forth doing this thing and it doesn't feel like it's controlled or like highly choreographed or like perfectly timed it just feels like i'm getting to watch two great actors play off each other and do this arc of a scene and it was like a relief it was like oh nice like I can just relax and enjoy these performances without the kind of mediation of the perfect formalism like framing it all so I think that's what took me by surprise this viewing was remembering wait a minute there is a period of Wes Anderson before that where you could feel the aliveness in every scene a bit more
3: yeah and I think there's a groundedness to the setting here like i think mm. I think a lot about the scenes that are out on the street or like just out in New York, you know um and while of course you can tell and and I've read that this is true, Wes Anderson took a lot of trouble to like disguise the like New Yorkist things right, like kind of trying to make it a little bit of like a like a cousin city but not actually New York kind of thing. Um, like he actually, you know, digitally removed the statue of Liberty from Mm. the background of one shot, um, where it would have been seen. And so I think that that aside, it still feels like a city of this earth, a city of like our world. Right. And, and of course it's like a time out of place, right? Like all the fashion is like, Certainly spans many decades. The music spans decades. You know, we have no idea what era this is supposed to be set in, except the latter part of the 20th century. Vaguely.
2: One the tombstone says 2001. Right, exactly. But, I was like, whoa, wait. OK.
3: Right. But the movie doesn't <laughs> the movie doesn't purposefully doesn't ground itself in our reality. And yet at the same time, it feels grounded in our reality in a way that movies like Grand Budapest and, of course, his animated movies. And even movies like Moonrise Kingdom do not, right? That's set on a fictional island where it's like always summer and summer camp. And, (laughs) you know, Grand Budapest is set at a fictional hotel in the mountains. And it's like everything is sort of removed from our world in sort of later Wes Anderson movies. And this one and Rushmore even. And I would say Bottle Rocket, too, put it in this same box. It feels like this is akin to the world that I occupy. It's not so far out there that I can't like access it and sort of just a textural level.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the thing you were saying about when it's set, it it reminded me of when we're talking about the Incredibles where the Incredibles Mm. is set in present day, but it's a 1960s world. Right. And Mm. I feel like that's what we get with this and some other Wes Anderson movies is like, yeah, the movie's set in 2001, but that doesn't really mean what it normally would mean (laughs) it's still this sort of like late 60s early 70s movie uh that everything even like the style of what people are wearing and the fact that they you know all elevator operators whatever but (laughs) but it's also set in present day because it's just set in like wes anderson's brain world right
1: right (laughs) yeah there is an interesting comparison that i think to like david fincher and early david fincher and i think Mm. i've talked about Seven and how I really love like that era of David Fincher, for I think the same kind of reasons that we're identifying with Royal Tenenbaums because it was uh, David Fincher's second feature film and there wasn't like, you know, he hadn't hardened into the, every frame must be digitally enhanced to be the perfect frame and have the perfect camera move. It's shot on film, it's grainy, uh, there's handheld, all these crazy things, but it still has the the artistic like vision and uh, like the soul of the of the filmmaker still like grasping for those things but those things are kind of just outside the reach and so there's a messiness meeting the controlled like formalism and I think that's why I love that movie and think it's really beautiful and I think that's also kind of what we're talking about here with the Wes Anderson where there he is aiming for these uh, you know very tightly composed you know, somewhat perfectly symmetrical shots, all those like stylistic things, but they're the point isn't to be as much that as possible. It's just doing whatever whatever the intent behind that is, and and I, I feel like that's kind of this this movie in general has this kind of contradiction where it's about all these really intense emotional like you know trauma and depression and like familial relationships, all these like really intense things. And the performances are all like very like minimal and dry and, you know, uh, without affect. And I feel like the filmmaking is like accentuating that by like this line is delivered so dry, but the camera move is so ostentatious and in your face and the the composition is so it's doing so much work that I don't know there's, there's something in Wes Anderson at his best, I feel like, when it is it is this open wound of emotion, like you were saying, Brian, mixed with this weird formalism constraint that just creates this magical, like, amalgam that just bypasses all of my defense mechanisms. And I, I just find it such a fun place to exist when it's all working just right.
3: Yeah. And I think it's some of these early movies, and especially in Tenenbaums, that there's the style is reinforcing sort of this thematic tension that's happening, right? Where, you know, Tenenbaums and Rushmore 2, and Bottle Rocket to a lesser extent, but um, there are, you know, Wes Anderson characters are, are like, especially in this movie, are concerned about how they present themselves, right? There's this sense of like proper behavior, right? It's like, well, we come from this certain kind of family. This family is renowned for its family of geniuses. And like, we're all exceptional. We all write books. We all like, you know, are a tennis star or business genius or whatever it is. And- there's this sense of like how the world perceives the family. Right. And so the formalism such as it is in the movie um, and the same thing that you're talking about with the buttoned up sort of performances is speaking to that aspect of what's happening thematically. Um, And then the sense of like grief and loss and failure that is really evident in this movie, I think is exactly like, Coming out in that, in the text of what people are saying, right? Like, you know, I think Wes Anderson is known for pithy one liners, but often the mo- ones that I remember most from his movies are the ones that are just the plain spoken statement of like a devastating fact of like, mm-hmm. this is how I feel, right? And in this movie, it's um, Eli Cash going, I always wanted to be a Tannenbaum. And then, you know, Royal goes, Me too. <laughs> like mm-hmm. right that feeling of of disconnection but longing for connection um with this idea of a family right which may or may not even exist like uh this sense of like striving towards this idea um of this family and i think that the in in his best movies that's why i think maybe the the style feels like it has a point Right, because it kind of is doing, even if it's just on a subconscious level to you as an audience member, it sort of is doing thematic work. Or it's like putting you in this position of puzzling out what's really going on in the collision of these two elements.
1: Yeah, and that reminds me of, you know, we talked in our episode on The Village, patron exclusive. You can check it out on our Patreon. <laughs> one. Uh, we One of the things we talked about is kind of in that movie, there's this... Um, kind of not quite a theme, but a recurring idea that sometimes people hide uh, the way they feel. It's, it's basically like, I love you so much that I'm going to act like I don't know you at all. Like I can't touch you because I have feelings for you. Like you, when you feel something so deeply, the idea of even going like an inch toward that thing that you want or that you long for is, is too scary and too vulnerable. And so ironically, Uh, You withdraw from the people that you want to be most dear to because you're afraid of the rejection or whatever that is. And I feel like this movie is filled with that. And I think that that's kind of what some of the style is doing also, where it's like these characters feel things so deeply that they can't begin to express it with affect because it's... It's right. just too much. The but, floodgates would open, if right? right. And so again, like, everything yeah. is just like we have to hold on so tightly because it's it's too much to bear. But the filmmaking and the cinematography and the set design and all these things is uh, a colorful place of emotion, and so it is. It is signaling, I think, to you as viewer that like. These are people with emotions and feelings that want and desire these like deep relationships. And it's just they're so uh, afraid of the rejection and the pain and the trauma that they can't emote it. And I think that's I really like that kind of I love you so much that I can't tell you I can't even look at you or express anything because like it's too much. I find that very powerful.
0: Right. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, we can get into just like the design of this family and stuff because of yeah. how, like, mm-hmm. why are these characters the way they are, right? You know, so it's like you start with, isn't it funny? These kids talk like adults, like, haha, like he's drinking coffee. Isn't that crazy? And like, yeah, it has that, like, coo- that sort of goofy, whimsical Wes Anderson-iness about it. Um, but it's also setting the tone for that's who these characters were as kids. So that's all they've ever known. So now they're sort of stuck in this weird arrest development thing where they feel like they must speak a certain way and act a certain way. But they don't know how to just express themselves. Right. Or they don't know how to just like laugh at something or do this or whatever. So they're sort of they're sort of in this like two. They're basically in two extremes, one of which is, as you were just saying, Michael, like I need to. Either not say what I need to say or just say it, a matter of fact, or I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to like, you know, freak out or like run away, run someone down, like whatever. Like so it's this sort of so it's like you have these like adult children at the start of the movie and then they're sort of like childlike adults at the end, you know, once they're growing up because they they don't know how to just be normal because they've never been that. Right. Um, so I think that's really fascinating and sort of says something interesting about, you know, <laughs> who we are based on where we came from and, and all that kind of stuff. But then, of course, what makes the movie feel more, I think, alive and stuff is that you have Gene Hackman in the middle of this being like, yeah. Eh, yeah, hell of, hell of a grave, huh? You know, whatever. <laughs> Just like sort of the anti, where he's like, I never understood this family. Um, and then beautifully, you have um, uh, Etheline. You know, Angelica Houston's performance is so great here, where she is mm-hmm. like, she's sort of in the middle. Where on one hand, she's going, "This is weird." But on the other hand, she is like so empathetic and so caring, right? So when she comes in and Margo's in the bathtub, she doesn't say like, what are you doing? Get out of there. She's just like, what's going on? Tell me, tell me what you need, right? Um, So it makes, it sort of humanizes the whole family rather than just being like, look at these kooky two-dimensional characters. It doesn't feel like that. It feels like these characters who don't know this middle ground of how to be a person. They only know these sort of two extremes, but then they're surrounded by people who are sort of. They're all, you know, they're all kind of conflicting with each other in the perfect ways to make them get them to where they need to be by the end of the movie.
2: I, I think you raised a really great point there, Brian, about just the character of Royal and Gene Hackman's performance is is part of what makes this movie feel like it walks that balancing act so well because he I mean he's both, you know he can be an asshole. He can be like totally, uh, you know, politically incorrect. (laughs) He can be, he can be a lot of things, but, but he's also kind of this fun audience surrogate at times where he's just kind of like, what's up with you people? Like, what are you doing? Like, what's going on here? Like, just be real. What, like, what the hell? And, you know, he, he is like a fun flawed, I don't know if protagonist is the right word, but kind of instigator of the story. (laughs) Um, like he's, he's like a lovably, f- deeply flawed character that we enjoy seeing like barreling into a room and kind of blowing up a situation. And that is an energy and a presence that is maybe missing from some of those latter day Wes Anderson films where nobody's allowed to be kind of outside the box of the controlled affect. And he, he does feel like he's kind of freed from that in this movie in a way that maybe other characters who are more directly dealing with trauma or they're insecurities do have that tight control to their affect. So yeah, I think I think on this viewing, I was like, oh, that's why this movie feels kind of refreshing in a way I, that I forgot or didn't expect is because really because of Gene Hackman and his performance. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I have thought a lot about him. Um, and we've said many times on this podcast, you know, like comedy needs assholes, right? Like basically... Yes having somebody like him at the center of what is essentially, it's a dramedy, right? But it's essentially a comedy does like usually provide the alleviation of whatever tension is happening in a scene. Everyone's standing around afraid to say what they feel or how they feel and everyone's depressed. Like that's the other thing is that the kids are all really depressed, right? Like all three of the Tenenbaum children and Etheline, who I adore Um, and like, I want to get to her back to her in a second, but, um, it's kind of not paying enough attention, right. To what's going on with Mm -hmm. the kids. Um, and like, I think that, you know, for all of his flaws, you get the sense that Royal likes himself. (laughs) Like, I mean, he like goes, he goes back and forth between like, like, all right, I'm a cad. Like I, I deserve everything that happens to me. I've like messed up a lot in my life, but the way that he carries himself. He's active, right? He's doing things. Um, and like the way that he's trying to connect with his grandsons is the wrong way to do it. But he's going to try to do it. And the way that he tries to connect with every member of his family, like buying Margot ice cream and like <laughs> trying to pick a fight with sweet Danny Glover. Like um, Henry. is so sweet. I, I
2: <laughs> love, I love so Danny much. Glover in this movie.
3: <laughs> right. Like he's because he's trying to like you know, show Ethelene that he still cares about her, whatever it is, right? He's going about everything the wrong way, but he's doing it with, like, confidence and, like, activity in a way that is, like, you can root for it, even though he's being a jerk at every moment. You're kind of like, well, you're trying to do the thing, man. Like, and and essentially, you know, you know, you uh, earlier, Alex, and I said nobody really has a goal, He is he is the one who has a goal. So, like, mm-hmm. of all the protagonists... Um, or all the people that you could say are the protagonists. I think, um, you know, uh, Richie is a really good contender for this, is maybe also the protagonist of this movie, but it's probably Royal and he does find redemption at the end and he is like seeking a goal throughout most of the movie. Um, and again, in, in ways that are. Very messy <laughs> and completely wrong by starting off by lying about the fact that he has cancer. But like he's, you know, he just wants to be with his family again for his own personal reasons. And he's not stuck in a way that a lot of the other characters feel stuck, right? You just want to shake like the bomb children and be like, you are still exceptional. It is okay. <laughs> like you still have a lot going for you. Um, but, you know, that's kind of what Royals presence in their life is there to do.
0: It really struck me this time, you know, watching Royals arc or it's like lack thereof question mark. You're, you're kind of never sure where he is. Right. Um, is he just doing this for himself? Is it is it? he Does he really want this? But he's not really sure he wants it for the wrong reasons. You know, that kind of thing. The moment that struck me this time that I had never really appreciated before, I think, was that he goes to visit Rachel's grave by himself, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so that it's such a sweet way of showing the audience like. Yeah, he is. He has made this change um, because whatever he's showing to the other people might just be whatever he's showing to the other people, right? But just this quiet moment where we're just watching him be there is—it's just kind of signaling to us, like, okay, he has actually like this movie's not going to end with him just like going to case the jewelry store or something like that. You know what I mean? It feels like he has genuinely made the change that we were hoping for.
2: Well, I think even earlier in the film, there's that moment when he's packing up to he's being yep. kicked out because the truth comes out and he says, he has been the best few weeks of my life. Mm. And then
1: the moment those words came out of his mouth.
2: Yeah, he realized it was. Dreadful. But I think that is that is what is so that's that's where the movie was really starting to get me. And I was like, ah, God damn it, it's working because it, it, it is that sweet it's kind of an archetypal story of you You begin with maybe a selfish motivation, um, a self-serving motivation. But then through the seeking of it, you have this deeper, more enriching experience. You realize, oh, man, like I actually do want this thing that I kind of neglected my whole life. You know, this experience of having a family, really being with my children and my grandchildren. And yeah, the movie, I think, does take him on a pretty clear journey of just like, I'm pissed off, you know, I need money, I'm broke, and I'm pissed off that somebody's taking my wife, all the way through, wow, I, I actually love being with my family and want to actually be with them in a real way that I haven't been for, you know, the past two
1: decades.
3: Yeah,
1: And I think it's so, yeah, powerful and and simple that, you know, he, what he wants is, like we're saying, to, to be with his family and to have the family kind of all... BS1 and all that stuff and it does happen but just like indirectly like like you were saying Tricia all the things he tries to do don't really work but the like the fallout of those things like somehow does end up pushing everyone to take these actions and so he does actually end up being a force for change for good even if that wasn't his uh, if you know the way he went about doing that didn't work but the result of whatever the hell he did do ended up pushing people to where they needed to go it's like a fun yeah
2: it feels like kind of a shakespearean farce in a lot of ways where you you have somebody yeah. with the kind of false identity the identity of i'm dying and yeah I, I think it's just it's it's a great comedic form to remember which is like have kind of this mistaken identity or farcical situation where the truth is going to come out and blow it all up but during, during the farce, during the lie, truth happens and good things happen. So, yeah, you have the crisis where the truth blows up and everything is ruined temporarily. But real stuff happened during the lie that ultimately is going to redeem the characters in the end. And it's just it's a really powerful comedic story form.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And I think it's really important that we have ethylene in there as a foil for all of this because she's the only one who, like, cries in this movie
0: <laughs> mm. or,
3: like, shows real mm. emotion. Like, I would say she's the person who's, like, probably closest to, like, a normal reaction to anything that happens, right? Mm. Um, you know, Royal tells her he's dying and Angelica Houston gives that amazing performance where she's just like weeping on the street and then she like smacks yeah. him and then he's like, no, I am dying. And it's like, <laughs> OK, um, but we get so that good. we get that from from the character throughout the movie. Right. Where she's, you know, um, Bill Murray's character, Raleigh Sinclair, calls her and says "Margot spends six hours a day in the bathroom watching TV and she comes. Right. She is a mother like She's, again, like maybe not the most attentive mother ever, but she does, you know, invite and like Chaz comes home and she's like, sorry, what are you doing here? But she does bring him in and give him a place to stay. Like she is behaving like a reasonable person and like a decent mother um, for most of the movie. And she does show emotion and react when things are going on. Um, Like, you know, when we get to... Uh, Richie trying to take his own life like we see how that affects her and the rest of the family um, and also her sweet 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 romance <laughs> uh, yes. with Danny Glover is, so sweet. is really adorable and it's easy it makes her easy to root for right like and so I think that they're having her as a counterpoint to Royal it's like she is not a perfect parent or a perfect person but she is doing her best um, and th- again she's maybe the opposite of Royal and that he's like trying to do the right thing, but going about it in the wrong way. And she's like, maybe trying not to do the right. I don't know, but she's just like not doing, a, not doing a great job either, I guess. But she really also is trying hard and um, in a way that feels very human. Um, whereas right. Royal feels like a larger, like comedic character.
2: She's doing all the right things. She's doing all maybe the right
1: not things. Like connecting. Right. You know, in yeah. a real way.
3: Yeah. That's a better way to say it.
1: And I think like you're like you were saying, Trisha, there was like a, a she's like slightly not observant enough to like totally get what's going on. So I think she like if she could get what was going on, she would mm-hmm. do it. And I think the the bathtub scene with Margot is one of the many great examples of setting up character, you know, all kinds of character characterization and, and backstory and desire. And what do they get? And what do they not get? Because there's that moment where. Uh Ethlene tells Margot like, Chaz has come home. Uh Margo's like, well, why does he get to do that? And Etheleen is like, Well, he's been very depressed recently. And Margo's like, so have I. And Etheleen's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. so are you what? Like, I feel like that's totally right. like it's so yeah. obvious that Margo. And the is... next
3: scene is them getting into a cab. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And so I, I feel like that just it's it's one of these scenes where On the surface, when I'm watching it in real time, I'm just being entertained by this movie and curious about what's happening. But it's doing so much character work and talking about their relationship and talking uh, about Ethlene and what she is good at and what she's oblivious to. But she's trying. And so I feel like all these these scenes of this movie to kind of to our, our patrons point about this crazy web that gets set up of all these characters and all of their arcs. There's like sub-subtext happening in these scenes. I don't know. Just like when I watch it, I feel like mm. nothing happened in that scene, but also everything happened in that scene. And how did you do that, <laughs> Wes Anderson?
3: All that happened uh, was a hawk came back, and yet
1: <laughs> and so yet. much unfolded, yeah. So meaningful. Yeah.
3: Well, and this brings me to Richie and Margot, which, you know, is, does not feel as it's unfolding, intimately connected to Royal's arc, right? Like it's a little unclear at first how what's happening with Royal is affecting Richie. And it's interesting that we know what's wrong with Richie from like the minute we meet him as an adult. He's dictating a letter to Eli (laughs) Cash. He's like, I think I'm in love with Margo.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I also love that it's the guy he's dictated it to is reading it back for him. Like, I feel like that's just like a fun, like Wes Anderson. Yeah. It's just hilarious and good. Anyway,
0: continue. There's some great little two plus two moments in this movie, you know, where like what exactly what Richie says to, uh, to his dad, where he says something like, kind of talk to you about something or whatever. And then it cuts to, to uh, Royal going, Margot Tenenbaum, like, you know, like it's like, OK, we we didn't need the little thing. Right. We we got we we got what we needed from just that. And it just makes that a little bit more gives a little spice to it.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love those kinds of edits, too. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting that we know from very jump what the problem mm. is with uh, with Richie. And yet it's unclear, like where it's going or how it's going to unfold or like. It's a little bit, you know, of an unsolvable problem, right? You're in love with your adopted sister. It's frowned upon, even if she what, like, if she knew, what would she say? Although that mystery is cleared up really early on, too. How that fits into sort of the themes, right? That the royal storyline is expressing are like they're very unclear, and I think it's really interesting to pair these two like sort of arcs together. And I kind of want to hear what you guys think about the way that they're like interconnected, because we know that the relationship between Richie and his father is really unique among the Tenenbaum children, right? Like Mm -hmm. um, Chaz and Margot have always felt much more distant from Royal. Like it seems like Richie was always his favorite in a lot of ways. Um, And like sort of what happens with Royal and how it's related to what happens with Richie I don't know. I'm just just really curious to hear what you guys think about how these two sort of like themes speak to each other or the moments where stuff kind of connects for you between these two characters.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I I won't I don't have a lot of thoughts about how everything sort of interconnects with each other. But this movie very clearly is just showing us a bunch of characters who need a Sort of catharsis, right? And 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 they get it. And I think it's it's different for everyone. You know, you said no one cries in this movie. Margot does, but after Mm -hmm. you know, after the crisis, right? After so it's sort of like at a certain point in this movie, around the beginning of the third act, middle of the third act the characters start to get permission or give themselves permission to really express themselves. Right. And really feel right. So, you know, Chaz and Royal, like that's such an obvious thing, right. Where it's just, we're seeing Chaz be, if Richie is, is more affectionate towards Royal Chaz is the opposite. Right. Or he's just like, nah, yeah. Well, um, You know, just like saying the most like inconsiderate <laughs> things because he just doesn't have time for this. And, and, um, and so we see Chaz and Royal connect and we get like a, an actual moment of joy with them on the, uh, on the garbage truck with the kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Or even just the moment of tenderness where they're kind of sitting, where he says, he says, Hey, thank you. You know? Um, and then we get this moment with, with Richie and Margot in the tent, um, where she just starts crying in the middle of that scene. Right. Like, like she is just, and it's almost like this might be the first time she's cried and, in ever. Right. You know, you know <laughs> yeah. you get that um, these characters are finally letting themselves go. And even Royal, like his version of of that release is him is like the divorce papers. Right. And being like, I get it. He's everything. I'm not like, great. Like, I'm going to go over here. Um, and uh, and I think that, like, obviously, this is a family. So all the characters are interconnected with each other. So I don't have thoughts about what you said, Tricia, about like how specifically Those things all connect, but I feel like it's a lot of just here's characters with like similar conflicts and similar issues and they're all just sort of butting up against each other. And eventually that happens in the right way where the dominoes fall in the right way, where by the end of this movie, we feel like everyone has sort of given themselves permission to to let go of whatever this thing is that they've been dealing with for so long.
2: I'm I'm gonna agree with you, Tricia, that I was struck also watching this movie how separate the Margot and Richie storyline feels uh, to the royal kind of family reunification storyline. I mean, him and Chaz have a really powerful story arc that you know kind of ends the movie, but I I do feel like his influence on Margot and Richie is less clear. Like, I'm not sure how much Royal's presence is responsible for what happens in their story or if it really kind of would have unfolded in the same way if something else had brought them back to the same house. Um I don't know. What do you think,
1: Michael? You, you have a thinking face. In that scene that you were just talking about, Brian, you know, I think Royal does kind of give Richie some kind of advice. That's like,
2: right. There is that kind of, per- there's a permission given sure. where he's like, yeah. what the hell kid? Like, what do I
1: know? You know, yeah. live your life, make your own choices. Right. I don't think there's a strong, direct connection like nothing was leaping out at me and as i've been thinking this past five minutes nothing has other than i I just i think it i think what's powerful to me about it kind of goes back to kind of what you were just saying brian and what we were talking about earlier is like royal it seems like maybe he just didn't really try to be a dad to everybody when they were a kid and now maybe for the wrong reasons and executed poorly he is trying so him showing up and saying i'm dying brings all the kids back together into the house and that sets off this chain of events so i don't think there's a direct thing but i feel like just the seeing the people trying and forcing everyone into a house and creating that powder keg you know makes it all happen indirectly which it's maybe just enough for this movie.
3: Yeah. A couple things that you guys have made me think of. And and the first is, well, really what my problem is, is that I'm trying to like, I'm trying to be Wes. And like, I'm trying to engineer this in my own brain of like, well, I'm a writer. What, how would I come up with the idea to put a, a, uh, sort of incest, taboo, rela- sibling <laughs> romantic relationship in in this movie. Um, and, and I was having trouble coming up with the answer on that. Um, but actually, now that I'm thinking more about it, what you're saying there, Michael, really resonates with me about these, this, like, um, the concept of this family that I think the movie is really interested in and the characters are kind of like holding themselves to this, like, standard of, like, being a tenant bomb, right? And maybe that started with Royal, but you also kind of get the sense that it started maybe with his parents or his parents before him or whatever it is um, of this, like, you know, we are this perfect family. We are a family of geniuses. We're very successful, whatever that is. And therefore, maybe we have to be a certain level of, like, closeness and um, this, yeah, sort of, the tension that a family can get itself into when um, there's an idea of itself being presented to the public, then, then within the walls of it, you know, the actual walls of it, um, there's, it's so much more complicated and messy. And so one thing I was thinking about just now as you were talking is royal. the way that Royal slams Margot and her play when she's like 11 years old. And, you know, basically is like, your play is crap. He gives reasons why he thinks so. And then Margo leaves her party early. (laughs) Um, And Ethelina's like, I'm going to kill you uh, with a glare. And then I was thinking about the contrast to the way that Richie obviously thinks about Margo and her work, right? Like virtually every time we see Richie in this movie, he's reading a series, you know, a book of plays by Margo. Mm -hmm. And there's this sense of like, his belief in her just whatever that is or like you know his idealization of her we see the paintings on the wall right Mm. like she is the subject of his like art i guess if you want to say it that way but just you know um, (laughs) failed to develop
1: as an artist
3: (laughs) right the idea that he's pursuing of his family is intimately connected to Margot um and being like her genius and her the fact that she like is a part of this idea that he is, you know, wanting to be a part of potentially, um, or that all of them are sort of wanting to be a part of, or, or dealing with, do I fit here? Right? Is this really the family that it's always like acted like it is, or been um, praised as, if you could put it that way, to the public? So I do wonder if there's something in this idealization of Margot. I think the filmmaking does this too. Uh, right? In that scene where she gets off the bus, the most famous famous scene in the movie, probably there's this idealization of her as maybe representative of the idealization of the family. And it's interesting because she is the adopted member of the family, but yet in some way she like kind of personifies like the glamor and the intellect and the sort of tenenbaumness of the whole thing. Um, Even though Royal doesn't really see it. uh, It seems like Richie maybe does.
1: It's a lot going on in this movie. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, and it? mm-hmm. there's a lot of like complex motivations. Because yeah, there's the the pressure of being a bomb and being perfect. But there are moments also in the film where that feels like it's really in the background, and you know Ben Stiller's character is kind of just like not good at grieving and like getting yeah. over this trauma, and like so it, I, I feel like that's kind of the magic of this movie is that there's good stuff, textual stuff that connects and supports each other. And there's also things that probably are kind of like loose and random, but feel of a piece, you know, going back to what you said earlier, Brian, just like the wound that you can feel in the filmmaker's vision or in the creation and the art. I feel like that is all, it feels like it is all of a similar wound, even if not, maybe the branches connect directly and, that wound is healed all by the same thing, which is, you know, directly or indirectly Royal's involvement and journey in this movie. Right.
2: Right. Even even though their wounds are kind of different or they have different uh, types of wounds, the unrequited love or death of a loved one trauma, like every kid, every character in this movie, like is in need of that catharsis that we mentioned earlier. And so it's, I think, yeah, the, the web is tied together by... The wound and the need for catharsis. And they may not be perfectly thematically connected, but that's the the root.
1: Like the supportive family to do that. Right. Right. Yeah. Right? Well, Having yeah. A family.
0: J- just the fact that the... Just simply the plot is what is causing all of these things to happen, right? So it may not feel like right. every, every subplot is directly connected to Royal, but they're all happening as a result of it, right? So it's like one right. person comes to the house, then everyone comes to the house, and then now they're all there. Even um henry and Etheline is royal you know there's conflict there with royal so it's like that could just be this love story over here or whatever but it's not it's all directly related to that so i think even if there's not always super connectivity there it's just yeah they're all in one big house together right so they're everything is going to feel related to each other as opposed to i mean some something like maybe grand budapest or or um Uh, French Dispatch where it's like here's a bunch of things happening like all over the place right that like are maybe tied together by like a very thin thread but this is no these are family members who are all in the same space at the same time so that helps I think that helps it feel a little more grounded and and not feel too disorienting
2: it's like it's like a wedding movie or just any any kind of movie Mm -hmm. based around this is a, an event that's going to bring a bunch of people together that have not been together for a long time. And so all the things that have been stewing or undealt with are going to be dealt with now all at once in a really messy way.
3: Yeah, it's Which, a yeah. lot like a play or a novel, right? Like <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. in
3: that way. Um, I just want to quickly reinforce the longer I think about it, the more that I'm I think I'm onto to something here with this. Like Margot is like the idealized Tenenbaum. But she's full of secrets, right? Just like the Tenenbaum family is. Like, no one knows anything about her. She's been a smoker for 22 years. And, like, the messiness that's under the surface is being hidden by this sort of, like, perfect vision of her. And also... Longing for her is what makes Richie choke at the tennis match.
1: <laughs> I love that She has so like a much. grand
2: opus here about so tennis.
1: Balls.
3: Well, but it's interesting <laughs> that every time like Richie's out in public, somebody recognizes him, right? So there's again mm-hmm. that reinforcing that tension of like mm-hmm. how the family is perceived. Like Richie thinks he's a total failure and we know he's very depressed, but people are still like, hey man, we loved your match. You know, like when are you going to play again? Like, talking to him like he's still a huge tennis star. So the movie does seem to constantly remind us of, like, there's still a sense of, like, the former glory on the surface of the family, while the underside is obviously, you know, kind of this, like, wound, as we keep saying.
1: Playing through that, like, sequence again, it just reminded me of what we were saying earlier about just the the lack of affect and the performance, the showmanship of the cinematography but also like the rawness of the emotion like when richie finds out that Margot has been cheating on her husband like with not with you him Cash. right <laughs> with like like that's just such a intense raw emotion and like it feels so intense for this movie anyway yeah i just there is just the piecing together of things that you don't see put together often is done very well and do very great, powerful emotional effect in this movie. And I love it. i don't we say what lessons we're going to take from the Royal Tenenbaums.
2: Alex? Yeah, I think this is something that, I think, Michael, we've talked about before with Wes Anderson and why, you know, he often cuts through your defenses. And I found myself having the same experience with this movie, which is you know there's not a broadcasting in his films of like an emotional thing is going to happen now or like a, a catharsis is about to happen now there's no like movie language telling you to prepare yourself or to like switch into that mode like things just happen and one of the earlier smaller moments of that which is not even i think even a good example but i i was struck by there's a scene where uh Chaz, Ben Stiller's character, is settling into the house. The kids are in the bunk beds. And he's just like, no, I'm going to I'm sleep on the floor tonight. I'm going to sleep on the floor with you guys and keep mm-hmm. you guys company here. And then just one of the kids just like crawls down. Mm-hmm. There's no like music or anything to make it be like, this is a special moment. It's just like a matter of fact. The kid just crawls down and like cuddles with him. And it But it's just like simple and plain and matter of fact, but it just is so sweet and like says so much in the simple action. And you know, at the end of the movie, when We cut straight from this kind of just fun, goofy moment of, you know, Chaz is now also on the garbage truck and everybody's like having a ball and smiling. It was right from that, too. And then matter of factly, like uh, Royal, like had a heart attack or whatever happened. And they're in an ambulance and Chaz rode with him the whole way. And like that is that. And but it's like it just happens and it's matter of fact, but like it's so real and so sweet and so just like and it it does replicate the the life feeling of just yeah in life you don't get like an orchestra coming to warn you that like everything's about to change it just happens um and i think his movies like capture that kind of matter of fact intensity of life just turning on a dime um killing dogs randomly yeah, yeah. just yeah. like why yeah. always the dogs
0: <laughs> well except for except for one um instance of what you're talking about which is if i remember correctly it's darjeeling limited and they're just walking along and there's some kids playing in a river oh my god
3: that's and mm. one of them
0: just goes like look at these assholes like it's like a funny little thing and then suddenly like what the, the kids are in trouble and they have to go help and then spoilers I think, if for I darjeeling Right. Yes, spoiler. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, like the kid dies, and he does. it's right. like, yeah, and and it's like, just like you're saying, Alex, it's it's just sort of this. Your your guard is not up for those moments, you know, and 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 in a movie where, it, especially in a movie where it feels like I'm not supposed to be feeling much emotion in this stilted kind of delivery of lines, then it's like when one of those moments happens, it just like it really punches you in the gut.
2: Yeah, and like we've been kind of talking about like i think michael maybe you mentioned earlier you know just in life we are often walking around like we're not like feeling things deeply we're just kind of like guard up and so there is a nice replication of life slapping you in the face uh that his movies can do where it's like that is how it feels where it's like i'm doing my normal life my normal routine blah 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 and then like something really intense happens and it it is just like, Whoa. And, and his movies do that in a way that I don't see anybody else quite replicating because he, he gets you into that groove with his style and then he just totally hurts you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I
1: think that's, that's kind of like the, the irony in some ways is that in real life, like you're saying, there isn't an orchestra that is playing that is getting ready for you to have your Oscar moment when you finally tell right. the person that you love or that you're leaving or that like you're dying. Like there isn't the way movies portray emotion uh, is actually not how I think most people uh, play their their lives in real life. And weirdly, the Wes Anderson more closed off the like, it's taking everything for me to say You know, whatever this, like, snappy one-liner is, like you were talking about earlier, Tricia, that just says everything all of a sudden in a single moment like that, in some ways feels more, like, emotionally honest to uh, life. I don't know. For me, anyway. I don't know. I'm a robot, but... (laughs) It's like, it's not a
2: documentary. It's not trying to, like, show you actual real life, but the Wes Anderson facsimile captures a truth about it, about the experience. Yeah.
1: Brian, now I just want us to do Darjeeling because I just hear that like the yeah. line because like, because I think the line is also like, mine didn't make it. Mine didn't make they, it. Because they, oh God, oh, yeah right, so good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, cool. Okay. Trisha, what's your lesson?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, Wes Anderson is known for creating um, iconic characters. Um, and I was thinking about how one does that. Uh, as I was watching this, and I think it has to do with um, how much information we get about them, right? Like, we start off with this montage about the entire Tenenbaum family, Um, and the kids, like, we feel like we start to get to know them instantly, right? Like, Margot's the playwright, Richie's the tennis star, um, Chaz is the businessman, and that's not all they are, Uh, but because of the way that the movie kind of like, it's doing a lot of like juggling of different characters. And so the, it puts them in fairly narrowly defined boxes, right? Like Chaz has not moved on from his wife's death and he blames his father for his overall unhappiness. Um, like he kind of has one problem, right? Like, and then Richie has one problem essentially. And like Margot has one problem. She's depressed, she hasn't written a play in years, she's in an unhappy marriage, right? The movie, like, explores all of the dimensionality within the box, but never tries to, like, paint outside of the lines of the box, right? Um, and it helps, of course, to have, like, iconic costume design, right? The costume design here is incredible. Um, my Margot Tenenbaum costume from for Halloween from a few years ago is probably still my favorite one that I've ever done. Um, but it's just, like, the imagery and the like sort of list of traits that you could kind of make about each character feel like bite-sized in a way or like perfectly scaled to the movie right as you're pointing out Alex these are not real people it's not documentary these are iconic characters they're archetypes now the cool thing about Wes Anderson characters is that they're he like it feels like he invents new archetypes (laughs) Where Uh it's like, I've never seen this before, but I get what it is, right? Mm -hmm. In just a handful of seconds. And the montages he uses really go a long way towards that, right? Where it's like, we get a montage about the kids. We get, you know, with Chaz. It's like, we have the ties. We have the Dalmatian mice. We have the coffee. We get the, like, okay, instantly I know who Chaz is. I don't need to know more than that. And then the opening scene we get with him as an adult here he is waking his children up and doing a fire drill and like screaming at them and whatever. That's a pretty narrow box for the character. There's lots to explore within it, but it's exactly what's needed for this kind of a movie. And it's it's different enough that it feels fresh and interesting, but it's not trying to be overly complicated or like too grounded, too realistic, too messy, or create too much dimensionality. It's just enough to be this new kind of archetype. Um, and I think Wes Anderson movies are perfect for studying for that reason. Um, you know, even if you're not writing an ensemble movie, but especially if you are, like if you want, or a TV show even, like, um, or a limited series kind of thing. If you're trying to create, like, instantly iconic archetypal characters, um, Wes Anderson movies, there's pretty much no one better at it, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think it's also... Like, all these things are great examples of, like, what's special about an ensemble movie and that, like, you don't need a character, like, every character to have 20 dimensions of things because, like, the tapestry that you are creating as a whole
3: exactly. is part of
1: each individual mm-hmm. character. Like, these, none of these characters in their own movie would be as interesting. Probably. I don't know. That might not be They true.
3: wouldn't be enough to carry a whole movie themselves. Right.
1: right. And all of them together and you experiencing them as a whole, like of a piece, uh, I think makes all of that more like powerful and distinct and and yeah. all of that. Reminds me of like a knives out or any kind of murder. I mystery. was just it's thinking just of knives out. Yeah. yeah. I
2: mean, it's all about the archetypes in that ensemble.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Brian, what's your lesson?
0: Yeah. Um little little bit of everything everyone has said so far. Um Tricia with the, the characters that we remember and you know Alex with the emotional gut punch and everything we've been talking about. Um, I was just thinking about the sort of substance versus style thing, which we talk, you know, you can't not talk about when you talk about Wes Anderson, but also about just relationships and wants and needs that we care about. Right. So a lot of times it's a relationship between two characters. So we have Max and the teacher in Rushmore. Um, We have several in Royal Tenenbaums, but most notably... Uh, Margot and Richie and um, Royal and the grandkids in uh, Darjeeling. It's the brothers themselves. Um, but if with uh, the short film beforehand, you have Jason Schwartzman and Allie Portman um, and, you know, Moonrise Kingdom, of course, you have this central central love story. And I feel like those are the movies and the moments that I remember the most because there is again, there's something very emotional at the heart of all of this style um, and then with some of the other movies again pretty much what we talked about at, at, at the front it's there's so, there's so much style and i might remember like oh there's like a cutout funicular that goes up a hill or whatever but like i don't remember who the characters are or what their relationships are.
3: I just I, I just want to say it, in good defense of Grand <laughs> Budapest there are relationships yeah. that I care about in that maybe they don't resonate with you but right
0: right yeah and 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 again um, some of these movies I haven't seen a second time um, so so that's part of the problem too but I feel like if I had not seen Royal Tenenbaums in quite a while I would still have like such a visceral memory of of some of these relationships and some of these moments these very emotional moments and i don't with um with some of the other movies and again that doesn't make the movies bad necessarily um but my lesson i think is just like there is a that is that is just substance versus style like that is what happens you know if you if you go too much into style and not a much, not as much into substance. People are going, your movie looked really pretty, but I didn't actually care about these characters. Or I didn't, you know, I'm not sure what I was supposed to take away from it or whatever. For me personally, Moonrise Kingdom is, yes, there's a central r- romance that we care about, But the characters talk so much like robots. And when the movie gets cartoony, it gets so cartoony that it's like the style is pushing me away from that from that relationship rather than making me care more and more about it. Um, And I like that movie and I like pretty much all Wes Anderson movies for the most part. But I feel like it's just something to be really careful with. And and I just feel like the more you can give me a really emotional experience that I remember and Wes Anderson's case by giving me characters who like giving me a central relationship that is just really powerful and really uh, just really emotional and really visceral, then your style, which hopefully will work in service towards that is earned rather than, Hey, what if, what if I did all these paintings in, in a movie, but you're not really going away remembering that thing. Right. And it's going to be different for everyone. It's, people are going to like different movies. They're going to care more about different relationships. But I feel like for me personally, I've noticed that the movie's, The Wes Anderson movies I like more are the ones where I just felt like a really deep, visceral connection to characters and specifically relationships that they have with each other.
1: Yeah, totally. Like Wes Anderson is such a fat... Like, I would love to just pause the world for a little bit and do like a global poll of (laughs) like, how do people feel about Wes Anderson? What order did you watch his movies in? How many have you watched? Like, there's part of me that thinks that just like his style can work for X number of movies for someone. And then at any point past that, you become so aware of the style that whether it's in Royal Tenenbaums*, bombs, Budapest, French dispatch, whatever it is, like now you're just aware of it. And so you're going to start pushing back just because of like pattern recognition. Uh, anyway, I would love to do a really in-depth scientific study <laughs> about that. Maybe in the afterlife, if you're allowed to just like, Run experiments. i can just tweet doing. at
3: Michael. In the meantime, <laughs> everyone that's listening can
1: respond. Do this. Yeah. yeah, but like, but like, scientific, cause Like you can't self diagnose these science. things. Yeah, I guess like, not,
2: yeah. okay. <laughs> he wants to be able to seed into your soul. I know the
1: truth. Yeah. what you think? It's not even what you think. It's what happened, whether or not you thought it. Anyway.
2: Right. Whether your brain went into a pushback mode. Yeah.
1: But because and I think about this also because like David Fincher, a very similar thing, like all these filmmakers that have distinct styles. It is interesting to watch. When does it feel like the style is eclipsing the substance and why? And is it for everyone? And all of that, I do find.
2: Right. And once again, if your first if the first movie you saw of a director was their most recent one. And it's their most stylized, but you've never seen anything like it before. It could right. be the freshest, most amazing experience ever, whereas we, we grumpy old folks are like, ah, "I've seen this before. It's the same old right. thing."
0: Right. But it could also be more push you push you away more, right? Like right. there's something I talk about in music, which is like you learn the language of an artist. So, like Radiohead's a good example of like if you know the language of Radiohead, you listen to a new album, going like, "Oh, okay, this is weird, but I get." I know that language, right? But if you haven't, like, then just suddenly coming in when it's, like, turned up to 11, you're like, what the hell's going on here, right? So it's interesting because it can have both. It can be so fresh and amazing, or it can be, like, really pushing you back. And I think what that's kind of ex- exactly yeah. what we're talking about here.
3: Yeah, artists are often in conversation with themselves, right, in previous things that right. they've made. And I, I think that that's definitely true in cases like Wes Anderson. I talk about it all the time with the Coens. Like, if you've never seen mm, a right. Coen movie and then you suddenly watch. I don't know, No Country for Old Men, like, you would have a reaction to that, I Bumpy. would think, right? A serious
1: man. Okay, yeah. Yeah. You
3: stumble into a serious man somehow, or like, yeah. I think <laughs> that might have been movie. my
1: first con movie, actually.
3: <laughs> right, crazy.
1: exactly. So yeah. Yeah, I've been struggling to figure out a, a, a single lesson takeaway. I don't really have one big one. Kill the Dog, I think, is a great takeaway in general from... What? Wow. Yeah. No, I... I I mean, especially in Moonrise Kingdom. (laughs) I mean, but also don't kill the cat. They do that in Grand Budapest. I don't like that. Anyway, I do think (laughs) I I like, as I said in the Moonrise Kingdom video, I like that it gives a world stakes. Like if you're willing to kill a dog, then what else is going to happen? It's like a movie
2: rule that you've broken.
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, intelligently doing, taking that lesson. Uh, I think I also, so also just like humor and timing and like hire Bill Murray and hire Alec Baldwin and yeah. like hire all these people that have disgustingly good timing and make things hilarious that shouldn't be hilarious. Uh, do that if you can't. But I think the, the thing that I'm going to think about coming away from this is just the relationship between, uh, information when do you give it and then when do you stop giving it and we just talked about sixth sense and how that movie has a ton of great scenes that have all this like subtext and it's really interesting and this movie as i was saying earlier there are these scenes where i like struggled sometimes while watching to even pinpoint like what is narratively even being communicated here because it's so like weird and goofy and abstract and absurd or emotional like all these things but it's always doing something and I think what this movie does is it front loads in a very obvious way a huge information dump as we've talked about about here are these kids here are their backstories here's what they want here's what they're sad about so you have all of that context and then the filmmaking can also point you toward the subtext so even if it's not there in the affect This camera is going to dolly in dramatically here. It's going to crane down here. It's going to whip pan to that person. And so I think it's a really interesting example of how you can use narrative tools, like just having a big montage that sets everything up so that everyone gets it, but also cinematic language to point the audience at meaning in non-conventional film language ways that I think is cool. What else have you guys been watching? Brian, what have you been watching recently?
0: Uh, I watched a movie called Pleasure, um, which uh, came out, I think, this last year slash this year, depending on where it was distributed. Um, And uh, it's directed by a Swedish. Her name is... Spelled Ninja. It's probably like Ninja or something, uh, but I'm going to say Ninja thighberg. Um and because uh, it sounds cool. Um, and uh, and it's a story about just a young Swedish woman who moves to L.A. to become a porn star. And it is just this like full on look into the porn industry that's like very not trying to be judgmental. It's just sort of matter of fact where at times things go really well, because there are professionals and and they are smart about what they're doing. And then sometimes things go really poorly because the people are not professionals, you know, and it's just sort of, it's not trying to be like, look how gross this is, or like, look how cool this is, or anything like that. It's just sort of, she, like the director actually did go and just live with those people and hang out with those people and really just spend time and wanted to just give a sort of matter of fact portrayal of this strange industry that exists right um but uh, but just as a as a movie i thought it was really cool i i liked the story i like the way it was shot um it just like aesthetically i really liked it and it was her first uh movie um so just someone i'm gonna definitely check out what she does next so uh yeah the movie is pleasure and you know if it's not obvious, this there there are there are things in this movie. So you know, just just it's not a Pixar movie. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, uh, but it's not you know short bus where you're like literally seeing everything. It's just, but it is you know graphic in the sense of the the ideas that are being uh, portrayed. Interesting. Cool. Okay. Awesome.
1: Cool. Okay, Alex, what have you been watching recently? So like many,
2: many people, I have uh, finished watching the first season of House of the Dragon on HBO. Um, <laughs> yeah, man, I, I had very like kind of zero expectations of like a new Game of Thrones spinoff prequel series. Uh, you know, like everybody, I had feelings about the end of the <laughs> original show. You can hear about our thoughts on the uh, episode we did about season eight of Game of Thrones uh, with Sage Hyden of Just Right and Alt Shift X. Uh, it was a very cathartic episode uh, anyway. So when I heard they were trying to do spin spinoff series prequels, I was like, ah, you're going to try to recapture the magic. That's going to be difficult. It's going to just feel like sad maybe, but man, like they really pulled it off. Like they brought me back to those early seasons of Game of Thrones when it just felt like a great twisted political drama, lots of effed up characters that all have exactly the perfect conflicts that that are irreconcilable. And so things are going to go bad. And you know, the, it just, it does the game of Thrones thing so hard and so well. And so um, like it earns, it earns what it, it's doing. I think some later seasons of the original series stopped feeling like, like the conflicts and the big moments were earned. This show returns to that uh i will say that i've never seen so many upsetting uh childbirth scenes mm. packed into one season of television uh, so, uh, big hurdle there for I think a lot of people. Uh, if you don't want to see like, graphically upsetting uh, childbirth scenes, um, so Trisha probably not.
3: No, yeah, thanks. Probably not for
2: you. <laughs> probably not for you, Trisha. Um, but <laughs> besides those traumatic uh, sequences, uh, really, really great uh, season of television, and I'm just very impressed and excited to see the next season. And I and I feel like it's partially why it feels probably. As good as it does, because it is based on a George R. R. Martin book. And there is kind of a vision of just four seasons of content. And that's my favorite kind of show where it's just like we know our story. Mm -hmm. We're going to just tell the whole thing and we're going to end it. And I think I think we're in
1: good hands with this one. I will just add that, yes, besides the extremely upsetting imagery that really did not need to be part of it. That season was like a 10 out of 10 for me. I loved it mm-hmm. maybe more than the original Game of Thrones. Wow. So. Really good. I, speaking of things that are really good, just finished watching She-Hulk, uh, which I'm yeah. I think a little bit late to. I'm really happy that I didn't follow any of the discourse whatsoever. Like I knew people were talking about it, but I was able to look away from tweets fast enough to like, are people complaining about it or are they like loving it? I don't know, but I'm just going to watch it and it was hilarious i feel like it was a marvel comedy that was funny there is still this like disney plus thing this new era of streaming thing that i think is happening where it's like is this is this a series sitcom or is this like a limited series with a a single story arc and a lot of their shows i think have like grappled with that and i felt that a little bit in this one but overall it was very successful the finale is really interesting and really fun. And there's a lot of uh self-awareness in it that I think was executed cool. And I also just really like that it was uh I, I feel like it's making me feel like we can have nice things again because <laughs> it 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 lets itself be a show about things that I think in a politically sensitive climate, I think there's a I need to perform and like walk through certain lines and be careful not to signal too much of this or too much of that. And I feel like this, this show is like, it's okay to have a, a protagonist that wants to be in love and like love stories are okay. And like dating is hard. And like, it can talk about those things. Sex exists. Sex exists. <laughs> like what? all these it things that are in like, show. yeah. <laughs> but I just thought the way that they handled it felt very intelligent and thoughtful and uh, like a forward-looking approach to all of these things. Like, we can tell these fun, it's okay to have rom-coms that can be like progressive also. Like, anyway, Mm. I just thought it was very smartly executed, genuinely funny, great performances, cool characters, Uh, super thumbs up from Michael.
0: Echoing all of that and adding that, I love Tatiana Maslani so much. If you've not seen orphan black, you do not know the joy of seeing her play five, six characters in <sighs> no. the same scene with different accents and different personalities. Um, and I've just been like waiting for since then for her to actually get her moment. Cause it just sort of, I was like, okay, world, when are you going to realize like, this is like one of right. the best actors out there. Um, and you know, she had some stuff, right. But now it's like, fine. Okay, great. Like you, you, you are she hulk and you are absolutely nailing it so it just it brings me such joy to see her uh, in the show that's awesome
1: yeah she's legitimately a good actor and funny and it's really hard to be those things all at once and she's really good yeah cool trisha what have you been watching recently on our sponsor movie
3: oh my god i'm so glad you asked me michael listen did you know, because I did not, that if you have Movie, you can go see movies in the movie theater with it for free. I did not know this. It is so cool. So if you have Movie, you can download the Movie Go app and they pick a movie every week. And if it's showing in your local cinemas, which admittedly It might not be, but if it is showing in your local cinemas, you can download a ticket and just go see it in the movie theater for free. Like it's amazing. So you don't just have to watch it like streaming on your TV or on your laptop or whatever it is. If it's a cool new movie, you can just go see it. It's awesome. So this week's movie was actually a movie I've been dying to see, Decision to Leave, which is Park Chan-wook's new movie. Uh, If you don't know him, he's a Korean director. Uh, Did The Handmaiden, which is one of, like, in my opinion, one of the greatest movies.
0: Trisha? Trisha? Yes. Breathe.
3: (laughs) I can't! Okay. All right. Listen. Okay. Anyway, The Handmaiden is excellent, so I was very excited about Decision to Leave, especially because Decision to Leave is a noir detective romance story, and, like, very, like, Hitchcockian obsession, slow burn, twisty as hell, detective movie. Um, It was as good as I thought it was going to be. It's so moody. I love it so much. Uh, The costume design is amazing. The performances are amazing. It's just a whole vibe. And the story itself is beautiful. It's just full of longing and... Um, If you've seen The Handmaiden, then you'll know that uh, that movie also has a lot of twists and turns to it, but it's uh, very explicit. It's just a very sexy movie. It's great. This movie has a lot of, like, subdued passion to it. Sort of keeps everything at a low smolder, Um, but it drives the events of the plot. There's a murder that happens at the beginning. Um, The main character is a detective, and he kind of, like falls for one of his suspects um, slowly over the course of the movie. It's really, really great. I cannot recommend it more highly. I, I like, didn't even do a good job of describing why it's so wonderful. But um, Decision to Leave is something I could not recommend more. It was this week's movie that you can see in the theater with your Go app. And now I'm, like, bummed that this is the first time I've used it because... I could have been seeing cool movies for free this whole time.
2: And you live in LA, so they probably are playing. They do. You they play right the over
3: there. Like, <laughs> they just play <laughs> at multiple theaters very close by. By the time you listen to this, the movie that you will be able to go see with the Movie Go app is a movie from Denmark called Holy Spider that I don't know very much about, but I'm excited to check out. And then also, if you do want to see Decision to Leave, it is going to be streaming actually on your movie. So, if you missed it in theaters, you haven't missed it completely. You will still get a chance to watch it on your movie, and I you should immediately. Also, go watch The Handmaiden if you have it, um, and Park Chan-wook's other films.
2: I need to watch both yes. as soon as possible. I yes. intend
1: to do both of these things. Yes. If you haven't heard of it, MUBI is the curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, MUBI premieres a new film. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover. Each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. And you can try movie for free for 30 days at movie.com slash beyond the screenplay. It's M-U-B-I dot com slash beyond the screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free. And as Trisha's saying, there's also Movie Go. Where you can claim a free ticket to a movie each week when you sign up. It's cool. Check them out. I need to go see The Handmaiden, I think. Immediately <laughs> the feeling that I'm having. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. This has been our conversation about the Royal Tenenbaums and about some Wes Anderson. And it really just made me want to talk about more Wes Anderson. And Mm -hmm. as I've already talked a lot about, do a global experiment that I'm going to spend some time thinking about. Love it. Anyway.
2: (laughs) (laughs) How do I scan the brains of Of everyone in the world?
0: Michael was just like, Wildcat was written in a kind of... (laughs) I'm vernacular. I'm going to
1: (laughs) go. Thank you to our patrons for supporting this show and making it possible. If you want to support our show, head over to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. The link is in the show notes. When you do, you also get a discount on our merch, 20% off. Nice little deal there. I want to say thank you to our producer Vince Major and our editors Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayotos. All of our Twitter handles from the show notes. Send us a tweet. Tell us all of your thoughts about Wes Anderson films and when you stopped loving them or started loving them, and the order that you saw them in, and if uh, repeat viewings changes those feelings.
0: Spreadsheet okay. with, a, fit with that a data in one set. tweet. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs>
1: 150 characters and a link to the spreadsheet. Pivot table. How many? What? What? I said pivot table. Oh.
2: <laughs> Isn't it 280 characters?
1: Is it? Why is that 150? <laughs> Speaking of pivot table, we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs> for the Truman Show.
3: Bye, everybody.
0: Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs> bye.